Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Randall Graham on the show today. Hello, sir. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Piacere. <laughs> so, I mean, where do we even begin? But, you know, back in the 70s, you were at UC Santa Cruz. That's correct. Yeah, uh, early 70s. Um, at the time, we called it Uncle Charlie's Summer Camp. It really did look like a summer camp. I visited once with my dad to see if we wanted to go there, and it was like this amazing forest with, with like bridges and cabins and stuff. That was the college. Yeah, it was pretty quixotic in the day, that's for sure. And and what was that experience like? I mean, it really it seems interesting that so many of the kind of iconoclasts of California winemaking came from the South in a way. You know what I mean? Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, Santa Maria. Yeah, I mean, I think um, yeah, there were there was a sort of an unnatural number of uh, winemakers who who went to Santa Cruz, and I think it's basically has to do with the fact that we were we were and probably still are largely misfits and and couldn't fit in anywhere else. So winemaking is actually a, a nice uh, venue for the mildly sociopathic. <laughs> well, it's worked out well for you. I mean, me. I mean, but uh, so you you kind of got involved in this idea of of wanting to make a, a world class Pinot Noir at a time when not so many people were uttering the term Pinot Noir. Well, you know, it was a it was kind of a placeholder for greatness. I mean, not a placeholder. Pinot Noir is great. Pinot Noir, when it's great, is unquestionably the greatest wine in in the world, at least in my opinion. And so, you know, if you're a guy, you got to do something that's difficult. And so Pinot Noir was sort of this... this Sisyphean. Sisyphean, yes, uh, Mount Everest uh, accomplishment, if you will. But you, you, along the way, you, you got involved with the Rhone. Well, I got, a, a lot, I got involved with the Rhone basically as a default because it was clear that I was never going to, or likely not going to make the great American Pinot Noir, or that I had misjudged its uh, difficulty uh, by maybe two orders of magnitude. And so you planted the original uh, Bonnie Dune vineyard to Rhone grape varieties. Originally planted it to Pinot Noir, and then that didn't work. So I pulled out the Pinot Noir and, and replanted it to Syrah and Marsan, and what I imagined was uh, Roussan, but that's another story. Altogether. Oh, it wasn't. It wasn't. No, no wow. it wasn't. How many times does that happen in the history of California? I mean, it seems like quite a few times with Gamay and you know Duraf and stuff like that, where things get confused. Yeah, I think there's going to be potentially less confusion 
uh, in the future with uh, with DNA uh, identification, but there's there's a lot of confusion even still in in the world about what actually is what. And so you got involved making uh, several different wines, but one was the the Le Cigar Volant, the the Chateauneuf du Pop uh, blend, Kryptonuf du Pop, if you will. <laughs> Well, hopefully it wasn't kryptonite to pop. <laughs> kryptonite you know? to pop. Yeah. Yeah. It's the blue kind. Step back. You know, that kind of thing. No, but, uh, you know, so, I mean, that, oh, okay, so let's set the stage. I mean, this is pre-everyone talking about the Rhone. You know, this was you planting grape varieties that weren't Cabernet and Chardonnay. This, I mean, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was essentially, you know, I, Pinot Noir, I had failed at Pinot Noir, and I thought, you know what, I've gone to Davis, I've, I've sort of invested the time in, in learning how to make wine, and I really think I want to be in the wine business. I better figure out a way to make this thing work. And I didn't, and still don't know very much about business, but one thing I did understand is that if you're going to succeed in business, you have to have a fairly differentiated product. Oh, okay. And so that's really how I ended up with, with Roan, um, working with Rhone grapes, it seemed like this. No one was doing it, and it seemed like it would have a chance of succeeding. Um, you know, after all, the the Rhone is the Southern Rhone, at least, is warm and dry, and it's kind of warm and dry in California. So that was my working hypothesis that uh, Rhone varieties would do well in uh, in the Central Coast. And it, there was market acceptance. I mean, it was a popular. I poured it by the glass for a while. I mean, it was something that. That made penetration into the, the at least the East Coast market. I mean, what, it seems like one of the things that you were really good about, at least uh, for the first two decades of your business career, was getting a lot of attention for the products that you you brought out. Yeah, I, I, I found that sort of accidentally had a, a little bit of a marketing talent, but in, in retrospect, uh, you know, sincerely, the first wines I made could easily have been dreadful. I mean, they could have been disaster and I might easily have gotten discouraged but accidentally they came out quite well or well enough and uh, you know sometimes I say I've, I've continued doing what I'm doing uh, owing to intermittent positive reinforcement in other words it's worked most of the time but you know you say that but I've always because I've met you first time like 15 years ago we did a wine dinner together maybe 12 and you know even at that time it seemed like you were always searching for something yeah. I remember at that time irrigation was a big big topic for you and not not irrigating Correct. because it was eliminating terroir and you know how many other people I heard that from nobody so it was just you know you're always a little ahead of the game uh, I mean now I've heard it from many <laughs> people you know I'm, I'm being honest yeah but uh and it seemed like you're always searching for a fine-tuning and you're even doing it today and you know with the new reserve cigar volant uh, yeah. the, versus the non-reserve how you're handling it so I mean what makes you you I mean why Neuro neurosis I think yeah well I mean just Desire Which to, is, that's to, cool. I mean, you know, I get that, you know, but. No, it's just the desire to do something special and different to make a contribution. And maybe, maybe, you know, my shrink would tell me it, it has to do with narcissism, but, um, you know, I feel at this point in my career that it's not, I mean, yes, of course it's in, it's doing something glorious and wonderful, but it's also really trying to make a contribution and do something worthwhile that has, lasting value uh, long after I'm gone. Uh, and I think for me, the holy grail is, is a vin de terroir. I mean, I think that's a greater accomplishment. The discovery of a terroir or the, or the uh, revealing of a terroir is, is a gift to the world. And that's something that, that transcends simply 
clever winemaking or, or clever packaging or marketing or whatever, whatever. Do you feel like sometimes, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you go to the museum and you see the development of illusionistic space during the Renaissance and you're like, oh, you, you captured the natural world in a way that hadn't been done. Do you feel like we're in that same time period for wine? We're like, oh, I'm, I'm actually trying to replicate this onto this other substance with different means. That's a really interesting idea. I mean, and certainly that is, I think, the essence of the of the notion of terroir uh, is a transposition. Um, but I think most New World winemakers, many if not most, still don't really get it. They still, ultimately, their notion is great wine is a wine people buy and pay a high price for, or or critics give a high point score to. It's not really so much about the discovery of a unique uh, terroir and crafting a unique style. Um, there are a few people, but it's it's certainly not the, not the norm. And has that dichotomy increased or, or decreased in the 30 years? Well, I mean, I think it has increased dramatically. I mean, I think um, the wine business, in a sense, su has suffered from its great success. And I think its success has been, in a sense, its downfall um, in that it's now become a business. And there's, there's a level of self-consciousness about what people do that, that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. 20, 30 years ago, people were in the wine business because they loved it and they wanted to be part of it. And they didn't have an expectation that they were going to make a fortune. They just wanted to be part of it. And um, somewhere along the lines, people started making money in the wine business. And I think it, it really tainted some of the, the pure impulse uh, or the, the more altruistic part of the wine business. And now it's so much about money and there, you know, the stakes are so high, the, the cost of entry is so high. It's so land is expensive, farming is expensive that people wanna play it safe. They're, they wanna protect their investment and they do whatever they think they can to ensure that they succeed. And I think that doesn't necessarily encourage risk-taking. I think maybe the opposite. You know, interesting thing about you is I always felt you kind of, you had your own circus show in the way that it's like, here's this exotic thing from the North and here's this exotic thing from the South and we're going to have them into the big tents. You know, like you brought all these things from the exotic things of the world under Randall Graham's Barnum circuit. You know what I mean? Like you brought Malvasia Secco and you, you know what I mean? You brought exotic thing. Like, look, it's a man child. And you know <laughs> what I mean? Why did you do it the way you did it in the sense that you brought them back to make them in America, I guess would be the question. Because sometimes you did make things in the south of France. So I guess when you were like, hey, I drink globally, I try wines from Spain, I, I like this grape variety. Why didn't you think, hey, you know, I'm going to farm a vineyard in Spain or I'm going to farm a vineyard in, in France or I'm going to farm a vineyard in Germany uh, when you made like uh, pack ram Riesling. Why instead did you decide to come back and say, you know what, we're gonna translate what I so like about that here and it actually might be impossible and I may not get the terroir, but I'm still gonna try. Why that desire? Well, I mean, that's actually a late development. I mean, I, you know, historically I bought grapes um, from that other people grew. I found wine in Europe and maybe blended it and imported it. But um, I didn't, apart from the initial uh, estate vineyard in Bonny Dune when I grew my own grapes, mostly it was working with grapes that already existed. And that was 
um, in a sense, playing it safe or 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 hedging my bet. Um, and this is the basic paradox of the wine business: to do something really original, you have to grow the grapes yourself, um, and really accomplish something really unique. You have to do it yourself. But the, there's enormous risk in doing that because maybe you've screwed up. I mean, maybe you planted the wrong grape, or you didn't grow it the right way, or for some some un, un, something you didn't expect. Um, things just don't don't work well. This is called the curse of the home ranch fruit. And you're you're sort of stuck with it uh, forever unless you unless you pull it out or regraft it. So I think I was always sort of afraid. I mean, having planted my own vineyard and then lost the vineyard to Pierce's disease, it was kind of a traumatic I see. Um, event, and I just was afraid to get back on the horse for a long time. And um, now I'm sort of ready to get back on the horse. You know, the, of course, the equine metaphor is very appropriate for the so-called run ranger well yeah exactly right but i mean i guess in a way europe had the monasteries to kind of take that financial bullet for all those years in terms of planting grapes and developing them in sites and figuring out if they were the right ones there and, and we don't you know right. we, we and so the financial model is is a little more difficult and you probably know that much better than i do um for example you know just to kind of bring it up to the current day i mean what are the realities of the project that is contra i mean what is how has that been received and oh, contra is, or or yeah. san juan batista do you, i don't actually know much about san juan batista well contra is is just a, a brand that we we make um uh from from purchased fruit grown in contra costa county and that that's a little bit of a uh story or drama in and of itself not a great drama but uh uh we're trying to figure i'm trying to figure out how to make wines um, that I can sell at a, at a popular price, at a fair price, and, and do some volume and, and make make a buck or two, and that would really be hit. The, that would really hit the spot. Um, you know, Bonnie Dune just really needs to be a more vibrant, economically vibrant entity. Um, I'm certainly famous enough. That's that's okay. Accomplished. Check. Uh, what I really need is is kind of a better financial model for the company and. Uh, it just just produce wines that where we can where we can make a living and um, uh, and still sell sell them at a fair at a fair price. And you've explored different models to do so. Like you you recently came up, oh, you joined a like a a, a club uh, that that has a special bottling that's uh, less expensive. Oh, are you thinking about the naked wines? Yes. Or, yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's working. That's not exactly. Um, you know the difference between life and death for uh -huh. us. It's uh -huh. it's just another thing that another tool that we're we're using. And we're just trying a lot of different things. Uh, obviously, we're trying to uh, enhance our direct to consumer business because that that is a little bit of the holy grail these days. Um, wholesale distribution is very difficult. Um, you know, everyone on the planet has more or less simultaneously de they decided that they need to become a winemaker. Right. Every rock star, uh, professional athlete, dermatologist has decided that dermatology isn't making it anymore and that they've got to be a winemaker. So uh, the level of competition is insane. It's just crazy. And uh, so you have to be very quick-witted these days to figure out how to make it work uh, and really produce a product either on such a vast scale that you're doing it very efficiently or on a small scale and so so special and so extraordinary that you've got a you've got a product that uh, 
that everyone wants. And it seems like you kind of turned away from that first possibility when you when you sold the big house projects uh, a few years back. Correct. Yeah, that's that's not for me. Uh, that's not for me. And, you know, in a certain sense, it was it was almost easier or was easier to make lots of wine and um, not having to worry that it was perfect and, you know, you could make some mistakes. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of people working at the company and uh, could delegate. Uh, can't do that so much these days. Um, on a smaller scale, you've got to really pay attention. You've got to really watch everything and uh, be more of a fanatic for detail and uh, really be more thoughtful about what you do. I mean, I guess the question I would ask is why is it hard for Randall Graham to develop direct-to-consumer when you have so much personal charisma and such a following? I mean, you're you're you're, you're like a Stone show or, or like the Fish show or Grateful Dead. I mean, people follow you around. I mean, I remember when I threw that, that luncheon with you, it was luncheon, guys came and they were asking you to just sign their hand or like, you know, they were offering you joints and stuff. I mean, I know. you know it's what I mean? It's pretty funny. But you know, you know, Levy, it's, these days I think, I, I mean, I might be a rock star, but if, if so, it's kind of more like the monkeys post TV show in Japan or something, you know, it's like I'm sort of the Davy Jones of, uh, of the wine business. Well, I don't agree with you, but I mean, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you, I mean, but how much of, okay. I'm just going to ask you, how much of the current Randall Graham persona is kind of like the sympathy thing? Because, you know, a lot of the things you're writing right now kind of like, hey, I'm not doing so well. And you're you're pretty vocal about it. Like, Yeah, I should probably be a lot more discreet about it. But, you know, it's this is like... It, do you need a hug? I mean, should I, I, I give could, you... I could use I a mean, hug. I mean, should I give you a maybe, hug before? Maybe when, we're, when we're done. Because they're long form asking for hugs. I mean, lately. So, yeah, I mean, what's I mean, going on? It's boring, to, it's boring to ask for hugs. I, I agree. I'm cool with giving them. <laughs> I'm telling you. In fact, you know, my whole studio, we, we, we make a requirement that everyone's willing to give a hug. But I'm just saying, you know, what's going on? I mean, is this a real existential thing? Because it's... It seemed like, you know, back when you used to wear the, the floral, you know, the deep robes and sit in a Pope chair. I mean, it seemed like you're unstoppable. Now it seems like you're you're, you're asking for a bit of pity sometimes. Well, when I yeah, I know. It's, that's probably a little unseemly. But, um, you know, what, what what's frustrating to me, Levy, is, is that I, I have this vision of what I want to achieve. And it's so clear in my mind. And it's, it's eidetic. I mean, it's just, it's there. And I taste it. I can taste it. And it is so compelling. And it is just so delicious. And I'm, I, I can't seem to get the wherewithal to move it forward with any kind of velocity or move it forward at all. And it's supremely frustrating to me. I, I feel I have such an immense contribution to make still to the world. And, I'm, and I can't seem to do it. And it's just driving me nuts, I have to say. Is the wine business become a business that doesn't care about its elders and forefathers? Well, you know, I don't think any business cares about its elders or forefathers. I mean, truly, you know, what have you done for me lately is, is certainly proper. I mean, you're only as good as your last wine, that's for sure. The reality is our last wines are great. They're amazing. I was a big fan of the tasting. Oh, I thanks. Mean, I, I tasted yeah. through, and I like the wines. Thanks. You know, and the Van Gris should get a lot more attention, actually. That's just Van Gris is doing very well for us. Van Gris. I think maybe we should just make Van Gris and, and kind of call it a day. Well, that's not what I meant. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
That's like, you're doing that thing again. That's where I like, oh, I like your jacket. And you're like, well, maybe I'll just burn all the other clothes I have. You know what I mean? It's like, come on. You know? <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm complimenting you. I'm not saying the other stuff isn't good. No, I mean, I, no, the, the reality is that I think people can get like one idea at a time. So, I mean, I think somehow people have grokked Van Gree. They've grokked the fact that, you know what? We really have this Van Gree thing down. I mean, like, totally down. So, But I think maybe that means, well, is there anything else he does that's worth looking at? Well, maybe. But, you know, Van Gree, absolutely, yeah. Well, it's the same thing with artists, right? Like, we want Mondrian to be little colored blocks and, yeah. and lines. But, yeah. you know, very rarely do we allow a guy to do multiple things. Like, very rarely do we allow a Picasso. Because it's like, dude, you're kind of screwing with me. Now i got to learn new stuff. Right. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we want Pollock to be splatters. You yeah. know? We want Rothko to be big things. And, yeah, they did other things. You're like, oh, what's that? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's almost, it's easily marketable if you're one thing, I guess. I guess. But then when it's not cool anymore, then you're screwed, I guess. Yeah, I, I would really like people to pay some attention to these reserve wines that we're making. The, they are really something. So let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah Walk yeah. me through it. What do you sure. got going? Okay, so, okay, in, <clears throat> in advance of producing a Vendée de Terroir, obviously Vendée de Terroir is what I aspire to do. That is, for me, the, the apotheosis. But I'm not quite there yet. So what it, the question then is, can I make a really exceptional wine, more or less with the grapes that I'm working with, with the vineyards that I have, with the facility that I have? How am I going to do something really different? And I've always been obsessed with wine and time and how to confer something like, if not immortality, at least longevity to wine. I'm really interested in wines that live a long time. It's like a Shelley thing with you. Yeah. You want to, you know... Like, you know, the, the sculpture is, you know, the sand has covered it over, but the poem is forever. Correct. You know what I mean? So, <clears throat> I've actually been doing a lot of thinking about redox chemistry, oxidation reduction, and are there ways, if you will, of <clears throat> charging the batteries of a wine or, you know, charging it such that it has this life force that enables it to persist over a longer period of time. And and there's this, this phenomenon of what is called the re reductive élevage. And this is not really well understood in, certainly in the new world, people don't quite get it. In the old world, they understand it a lot, a lot better. But I'm interested in things that you can do that really <clears throat> kind of beef up the, the, the life force of the wine. One of the things is, is this kind of extended reductive élevage. And so I'm also interested in um, the contribution of lees. Lees really, that's the yeast cells that, mm -hmm. that, that fall to the bottom of a barrel or, or tank. Um, they impart a really interesting characteristic to the wine, not just textural, they, they enhance the, the silkiness of the, of the wine's texture, but they also give a savoriness to the wine and they also work as antioxidants. So I had this idea of aging wine in glass bottles, mm -hmm. demijohns, uh, for, for an extended period of time, anaerobically. And then I had this crazy idea, well, you know, you don't want to lift them up and shake them, and you certainly don't want to open them up and um, stir them. So we put in little 
stir bars, little Teflon-coated stir bars in, in each bottle. And then we use magnets to do bat- oh, you do? batonage. Well, that's pretty fascinating. I've never heard anything like that. No, it's totally wacky. It's totally wacky. And so you move it around with a magnet. Like yeah. on the outside, you move the magnet yeah, and you the move thing the mag- follows you. Exactly. That's really interesting. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know that. And I mean, again, this could possibly not have worked so well, but it works It works great. It produces a really unusual <clears throat> style of wine. It works on the on the red. We do a cigar volant reserve with this technique, and the, and the wine has a very different texture than the uh, normale, uh, if you will. And then we do it on the white, and the white is out of sight. I mean, the white is really super cool. So outside of moving them to the glass, the wines are not racked? Is that what wines it sounds are, like? Wines sit on the lees. They're not racked. Uh, they spend an extra year or two in the glass bottles, um, and then they're bottled without filtration. And um, Where does the carbon dioxide gas go? Oh, it's, at some point it's dissipated. I mean, it, we... It's dissipated usually before the wine goes into carboy. So you, you don't really want it to be super gassy when it's in the carboy. Got it. So by the time it's in the, the glass, it's not. Or is the glass different than the carboy? Glass is the carboy. So it's okay. five, it's a five-gallon carboy. Sure I'm a little dumb. And then you stand it up and you gently, carefully rack it out of the five-gallon uh, bottle into into a tank and then you bottle it bottle it up and when you were coming up with this <clears throat> oh bless you when you're coming up with the, this thought process were there other examples in your minds of other producers in the world that well the only the only one i know who does anything like this commercially is emidio pepe uh-huh okay so those are pretty fascinating ones I, and those wines have this kind of preternatural longevity and i just had this intuition he was onto something and uh um, again, I'm, I'm just possibly a really great appropriator of ideas that float around in the ether. Uh, I'm not sure if I have any, that many original ideas, but, uh, I'm a great, uh, utilizer of, of the etheric knowledge. Yeah. I think that's a classic way that you put yourself down and see, I don't, I don't really think it's true though. I think you're, you know, pedal to the metal. You yeah. actually do it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah, think yeah. that's you being you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on, be real with the guests. They want to know who you are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's, I mean, come on. You're, <laughs> you're the story. So t- tell me a little bit about you. I mean, what do you really think about Randall these days? Are you happy with yourself or unhappy? I'm happy with myself. I'm ha- I mean, to the extent that I'm, you know, it's possible. And, you know, I think, as I said, I mean, I'd rather not talk about myself so much as talk about my, my winemaking ideas and grape growing ideas. Um, I have a very powerful idea, a very, very powerful idea that's possibly completely misguided, possibly nuts, but possibly like the world's most, the best winemaking, grape growing idea ever, ever conceived. Oh, can we hear or yeah, is it still? Yeah, sure, okay. of course. You know, I could say it's proprietary. It's so convoluted and complex right, and right. that nobody would want to do it even if they knew what it was. Yeah, sure. It's it's like one of those Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, like you just like assemble ten thousand pieces. And, yeah, <laughs> in your spare time, um, the idea is to plant a vineyard with radical genetic diversity, uh, whereby every plant that you grow in the vineyard is genetically distinctive from every other plant, and 
this could be an interesting strategy for A, ultimately identifying which particular um, genotypes are best or individuals are best suited to the site that really are super congruent with the site. And then the second thing that's interesting is, is potentially creating this vast polyphony of flavors, textures, in virtue of just this radical um, diversity of genetic information in the vineyard. And I think the, the, the bet is that uh, even though probably most of the offspring of the parents will be less interesting than the parents themselves. Simply in virtue of just the, the vast number of individuals that you have, you will create this quality that would not otherwise be achievable. And the other idea is that potentially by de-emphasizing varietal characteristics, you might, from a gestalt standpoint, allow soil characteristics to emerge. And this was this is what Jean-Michel Dice is doing. Sure. So, this, so this would be, be done on a slightly more heroic scale than what Dice is doing. But it's, it's the basic idea that the grapes are really mostly interesting as carriers of terroir, not so much for their varietal characteristics. Or put another way, if the soil characteristics are strong enough or expressive enough, maybe you don't have to sweat the varietal characteristics so much. You know, I totally hear you on that, and and that makes a lot of sense. And in, in, in when I think about it, but some of the times experientially, when I've tried wines like that, one of the things I've found is that it seems like the big question is ripeness and when to pick, especially. Well, as, when you say wines like that, what wines like that are you talking about? Well, Selbach Oster makes a field blend, and Dice makes a field yeah. blend, and I feel, um, you know, there's others, and I feel like often what ends up happening is the guy's kind of like, well, I don't know when to harvest, so why don't I just harvest when most of it seems ripe to me and often it seems a little overripe mm -hmm. when it gets finished and that actually for me obscures the the, the soil thing yeah you know what i'm saying yeah like absolutely the, it's tough to figure out when you have a bunch of different grapes like when you should pick especially in an era of global warming yeah you know that would be my thing that's why i haven't in theory i love it but yeah. then i when i taste it i don't always i'm like sometimes i'm like yeah it tastes a little overripe for me i don't, I don't know yeah i think maybe maybe you're You've been more focused on it than I have. I've I've been pretty impressed with uh, certainly, well, with with both uh, Zelbach and and the Dice wines. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then you know, there's this phenomenon. I'm told that if if grapes are close enough together genetically, um, there actually is something like a synchronization of the ripening uh, cycle. It's a little bit like menstrual cycles in women in in dormitories. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that true? I think it is. Wow. I think it is. Have yeah. you seen that happen? I've not seen it personally, but a, a number of people have have commented on it. Um, so, in other words, if you interplant varieties, they allegedly sort of talk to each other chemically through pheromones or whatever it is, and synchronize their ripening. So you could have, if they're if they're close enough together as as uh, as varieties, so you have a different something different happens when they're when they're in close proximity compared to if they're they're separated uh geographically that's interesting yeah you know in boca sometimes they they put vines into each other that are different like vespolina and spana they're yeah. like holding hands like uh you know like uh 
pocket full of posies. We all fall down. Like they're all holding like that. And they're, and, it's, and I don't know, they join them up. That's very cool. Yeah. It, I mean, it's hard to picture just verbally, but so uh, what, what would be the next step for you to pursue some of those projects? Well, it's going to happen. I mean, it, this is this is just a matter of exertion of will. I, I am a very willful willful person, and I will make this happen. I will make this happen. If it kills me, I will make this happen. I'm not sure yet how, but I will make this happen because this is too big of an idea, important of an idea, um, not not to execute. And then the other thing, Levy, that, that's quite interesting to me is is I've been thinking about it in a different way. And that is, yeah, it's interesting for me personally to find a bunch of interest, a bunch of grapes that are well suited to my site in San Juan Batista. That's very cool. But what's really potentially more important is that if it's done properly, I could be really enhancing the patrimony of our of our uh, germplasm by creating potentially eight or 10,000 new grape varieties. And um, depending on how well it's done and how thoughtfully it's done, these could be grape varieties that have utility elsewhere, not just in, in my vineyard. For example, you could, you could frame it such that it's, these are grapes that are best suited for the 21st century for, for global climate change, for, that are more drought tolerant or heat tolerant, that have characteristics that are, that are potentially um, more adaptable to the to the current conditions, more adapted to the current conditions. So, how much are you somewhat similar to like a Ray Bradbury guy who also builds robots? You know what I mean? Like, how much of it is a science fiction writer who also actually? That's maybe like is, more like the L. Ron Hubbard of. Uh, no, yeah, <laughs> no, but I mean, and if so, which one of those is more fascinating to you? The idea or the execution? Like, which one really holds your interest? Well, you know, being a Luftmensch historically it's always been the idea i mean because you know it's, you, it's easy to have great ideas or it's easy to have ideas okay ideas are are air and dreams and ephemeral um but at this point what's interesting is the execution i mean it's great to have ideas but i i want to execute at this point i, I i've got enough ideas i i want to see some of these things in uh, uh manifest themselves what what has manifested itself in the past that you're especially proud of well you know, it's, uh, people ask me that these days. Um, you know, I think in, in retrospect, truly, I think the conception of Cigar Volant uh, is an accomplishment. Is it? And I think just having made it for 25 or actually now almost 30 years um, is is an accomplishment. Um, and seeing it evolve and, and, and learning about these varieties and perfecting the style, I think that's, that's an accomplishment. Um, you know, I think if I were to die anytime soon, they would say, you know, what a great marketer he was. And that would not be satisfactory. And and is that the rub a little bit? Is that the part that kind of is a little depressing to you? That, that, part? that chafes me a little bit. That chafes me yeah. a little bit. Uh, I, I wish people would look more at the wines themselves than, than, at, all, than at all the shtick that, that has at, attended them. So, Randall, you are a man of, of diverse writings. Uh, they've been collected in different places, both in book form and then on, online. If if someone were looking for to find some of those writings, which have often fascinated me and kept me up past my bedtime several times, uh, where should they go? Well, we have uh, 
two websites, the sort of commercial website where you can actually buy Bonnie Dune wines is, is bonniedunevineyard.com. Um, then there's also, I have, a, I have a website where I, where I just write a quasi-monthly blog, and that's called bindunsolong.com. Uh, I've been a little bit remiss of late in, uh, in writing, but uh, I'm just finishing a piece right now. And how long does it usually take you to finish a piece? It really depends. Sometimes yeah. uh, very quickly, and sometimes not so not so quickly. And, uh, and by not so quickly, you mean oh, a week or two? Yeah, a week or two. Yeah. Okay. Because I mean, do you find yourself plowing in like twenty four hour days of of time into a piece? Because the pieces are long and they're well written. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. No. It. it I. I'm a reviser. I. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I revise. So. Um, but I often have a lot of time on airplanes and hotel rooms, and uh, I'm slightly insomniacal, so uh, there's there's time there too in the middle of the night. And have you found that your cultural set of references has had to change to meet new audiences? Like in the past, you've talked about like Dante and Purgatorio, <laughs> and is that still as helpful if you're trying to talk to millennials, or is that not something you care about? Well, I'm probably pretty pretty tone deaf to. Um, to the cultural milieu of my of my readership or uh, drinker drinkership, um, I would love to make expose the wines more effectively to millennials. Um, but the real question is, what do millennials want? You know, is it is it just cocktails? Um, I'm not sure what. I'm not sure what it is that, that that really intrigues them. I don't think they want to be in purgatory, though. I'm just <laughs> guessing. I mean, I don't know. But if who, I if I ask does? them, I don't know. They, but uh, there was also a book. Yeah, yeah there was a book. And um, against all expectation, uh, the book did very well. Um, publisher was happy, uh, won some awards. Um, that made my mother very happy. Um, so it was good. It was it was a kick in the pants to write it. I have to say, it was just wonderful uh, experience to to write it. A lot of it was a was a compilation of things I had done earlier, um, but just polishing it and refining and and writing some new pieces. Uh, it was great. It was kind of it was very soulful to to revisit uh, where I had been over the last twenty five years. And did you find that uh, winning the war of ideas was uh important more important back then and it is now is it even possible now with the level of of noise to signal i mean because you used to do the newsletter yeah like kermit lynch used to do a newsletter and you got your word out about what was important to you and you developed a following through that is it is it still possible to command the same level of attention from readers i don't know i think obviously everyone's attention is pretty diffuse these days uh there's so much information out there um, that if you can't say your piece in 140 characters, uh, you, you can kind of lose people. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, Levy, Levy, which is which is interesting to me. I still enjoy writing. I still enjoy communicating. But truly, I, I feel I've sort of said I need to do more and say less. Mm-hmm. I need to. I need to make sort of better wine, more wine, different wine, and, and sort of be a little more quiet about it and let the let the wine speak for itself. Well, I enjoy the wines very much. Randall Graham, thank you very much for sharing some time with us and continued success to you as you 
build and sculpt future successes. Thanks so much. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.